Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Talk Recorded live. Good evening and welcome to this edition of the Women of the Revolution. My name is Susan Bonner, and I am joined by my co-host and researcher, Deb. How are you doing tonight? I'm here. (laughs) How does it sound? Sound is good. Okay. Yeah. Well, if you are a first-time listener to the show, this is an educational uh, show about history women's history to be exact, and actually the women during the revolution, which you are never going to hear anyplace else because they just do not talk about it. That's not taught. I don't even think the revolution is taught anymore in schools, but you will find out here what really happened during the revolution and how big a role women played in it. Now, going along that vein, Deb and I have to uh, divert to current events because the Women's March that happened all over the place, number one, is not representative of all women. Number two was a deplorable, despicable display, and our founding mothers would have been horrified, would they have not? Mm-hmm. Oh God, yes. And in fact, I was horrified, and I was I was watching it on C-SPAN yesterday, going, "Oh my God, I used to be one of those people that wearing vaginas on your face wasn't what we were fighting for." You know, that wasn't that wasn't it, folks. It was just pathetic. Well, and and again. You know, going back to what this show is about and how we have shown the great courage and the fortitude and the suffering that our founding mothers went through, that the patriots went through, the loyalist women went through. These women have their biggest, I guess, fear or their biggest uh, worry of the day is if they're going to get their latte on time. Yeah, or they, you know, have to wish, and uh, I just don't understand it. But, again, there's so many things I don't understand anymore. Well, these women that we speak about lived and grieved for people that they lost during the war. They were quartered in their own homes. Their houses were ravaged. Their houses were burned down. Um these women that marched and, and even the idiot men with them, they, have, they, they are allowed to march because of our founding mothers, our founding fathers, and the patriots of old. If, these, if our founding mothers had done what they did under British rule, they would all have been hung. 
Yeah. Oh, not only that, they they probably would have been burned at the stake by the uh, by the uh, monarchs and whatnot. Exactly. They are allowed to do this disgusting display because of all the sacrifices that have been made for this great country. And the the thought that so many of them, number one, have a clue about what this country was founded on, what is the real principles of this country. It's like they don't even live in the same country that I and you live in, Deb. But the other thing is that they're so ignorant well, that's public, you know, government school um, and and universities. They they've they've gotten so far away from the original intent of almost anything having to do with this country. Um, I was watching, you know, Muslim women standing up there screaming for rights for Muslims, and I'm thinking, why aren't you fighting for your sisters that are? In Middle Eastern countries and and being stoned and whipped and you know pri- imprisoned and raped and kept as prisoners. It's like you don't even know what Sharia law is. Yeah. Uh, it just it just boggles the mind. It just boggles the mind. And of course, the more we read <laughs> about it, the more our little minds are boggled. <laughs> Well, we just had to say that commentary. I am very, very ashamed of my fellow Americans. I, the, the sheer number of useful idiots that we saw over the weekend scares the bejesus out of me. Well, that you can thank the Bolsheviks for that. Well, this whole thing was put on by either George Soros or the Communist Party of America. Exactly. I mean, these people didn't have enough money to do all this. And oh, get no, no. The- Oh, they're they're paid. You know, a lot of them. Well, a lot of them were college kids, and you know, their professors are. Well, they may not be card carrying, but they sure they sure believe in the agenda. They may call themselves progressives, people, but they're you know they're borderline, if not communist. So. Well, um, if this is what they're progressing us for, too, uh, I'll, I'll pass. That's right. No, thank you. I prefer liberty and uh, pursuit of happiness and, you know, private property and the government being as small as necessary. Hey, and uh, here, ladies, uh, the only people that are marginalized in the United States of America are white, heterosexual men like my husband. Yeah, especially if you're Christian. Um, these, these causes that you were fighting for, all of these minorities, they get a handout that I would never see in my lifetime. Nope. And and our you know our illustrious uh, not ours I didn't vote for them and I would never vote for them but the illustrious uh, representatives in in Congress and were were uh, also. Um, participating in this march, which shows that they don't know what the Constitution says, so. Really think about who you vote for. Unfortunately, we live in a new reality that uh, elections matter. That's not supposed to if we were under the Constitution, but we're not, so here we are. Yep. 
Anyway, um, again, I'm going to say one more time. The fact that so many of my fellow Americans, which I'm not even going to have to be able to call them that anymore, believe in this and really think this is how the country is, is frightening. It is. It's, it's, it's heartbreaking for those of us who uh, know what this country was did for and why and how. Yes, it was. It's it's actually very very sad. Yes. And I feel very sorry for them. No, it, it was so ridiculous. But I mean, I could go on and on about it, but I'm not going to. Well, no, but I did have to. Bring, it was. It is actually in the context of what we do on this show. I mean. We're trying to counter what they're doing by going back in history and getting the facts and exactly what women and how wor- how worthy we were back in the day. And now, since everyone's screaming about women's rights, it turns into this disgusting display. Well, yeah. I mean, the whole the, in, in the sixties and the seventies, when I was involved in in the you know what they used to call the the women's movement, feminist movement, and all that stuff, when it was in the beginning of that period of it, um, you know, we were fighting for choice, and and that didn't mean just the choice to kill your baby. That meant the choice of being able to buy your own home, work in certain areas that were not women friends and make as much money as men and to do you know what what we chose to do but now the feminist movement is so lacking in choice i mean if you go again i mean they they refuse to allow pro-life women in the march so apparently they're not real women or something so this 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 being pro-choice is so well it's not and that is what we were fighting for 45 years ago. Oh, silly women. Well, with that, we're going to go back in town when women were real women. They were real feminine. They were real patriots, putting everybody and everything that they owned on the line for freedom so those idiots could march today. We're going to be going to Maryland, and we are going to be highlighting the women behind the signers of the Declaration of Independence. We try to do this once a month. Last month was a bad month because I hurt my arm on the end of November very badly with a pectoral tear, which was is still ongoing. I'm just barely using my arm right now, my left arm. Um, it was a very, very, very bad injury. I don't wish this on my worst enemy. But uh, because I had to go to the hospital and have doctor's appointments, it was hit and miss last month, so we didn't get to do the women behind the signers of the declaration. The other thing is with the in Maryland, there were four signers of the Declaration of Independence, and two of them married two women because they had died. Um, but again, as we are finding out there wasn't that much about these women. As a matter of fact, there was very, very, very little on these women. And I don't know if we'll get to all of the signers, but we're going to do the best we can. And what we'll do is, even though 
you're going to hear more about the men, it's still the women were behind them. And we'll get into that as we highlight each man and woman. But in, to begin with, I'd like Zeb to give us a brief history of Maryland because it was very unique to the other colonies. Um, Maryland ended up being a Catholic colony, but it wasn't that in the beginning. And as a matter of fact, Catholics were really uh, persecuted in Maryland before they really established themselves. So it, it is different than the other colonies. We had highlighted the last time we did the signers was Georgia, which was the last colony to be colonized. And um, we're just going to go down the list that they have it in this constitutionfacts.com. So now we're going to Maryland, and Deb is going to tell us about Maryland. Maryland, yes, very interesting history, actually. Um, in the fact that it was one of the, it was, well, not the most important colony, but it was a very, very important, it was a leader amongst the other colonies, but the Revolutionary War uh, kind of bypassed it. it, it so it, it had a lot to do with uh, the po the politicians, the Congress, more so than than the war. But very interesting in in its. Uh, I'm trying to fix my chair so I don't fall out of it here. Hold on, just a minute. My poor chair is so old. But anyway, okay. So this is this is um, the pre-colonial history. Uh, to give you an idea of uh, where they came from, and you know, then we'll get into the more, uh, you know, the more uh, the revolutionary, pre-revolutionary time. So, this is from the uh, Maryland.gov, um, uh, SOS.Maryland.gov website. George Calvert, first Baron Baltimore applied to Charles I for a royal charter for what was to become the province of Maryland. After Calvert died in April 1632, the charter for Maryland County or Colony granted <laughs> to his son, Calvert, second Baron Baltimore, on June 20, 1632. The colony was named in honor of Queen Henrietta Maria, the wife of King Charles I. Led by Leonard Calvert, Cecil Calvert's younger brother, the first settlers departed from Cowes on the Isle of Wight. And November 22, 1633, aboard two small ships, the Ark and the Dove. Their landing on March 25, 1634, at St. Clement's Island in southern Maryland is commemorated by the state each year on that date as Maryland Day. This was the site of the first Catholic Mass in the colonies with Father Andrew White leading the service. The first group of colonists consisted of 17 gentlemen and their wives and about 200 others, mostly indentured servants, who could work off their passage. After purchasing land from the Yeocomico Indians and establishing the town of St. Mary's, Leonard, per, per his brother's instructions, attempted to govern the country under feudalistic precepts. Meeting resistance, in February 1635, he summoned a colonial assembly. In 1638, the assembly forced him to govern according to the laws of England, the right to initiate legislation passed to the assembly. 
1638, Calvert seized a trading post in Kent Island established by the Virginian William Claiborne. And in 1644, Claiborne led an uprising of Maryland Protestants. Calvert was forced to flee to Virginia, but he returned as the head of an armed force in 1646 and reasserted proprietarial rule. God, I can't. My tongue is tied. I apologize. Maryland soon became one of the few predominantly Catholic regions among the English colonies in North America. It was also one of the key destinations where the government sent tens of thousands of English convicts punished by sentences of transportation. Such punishment persisted until the Revolutionary War. The founders designed the city plan of the colonial capital, St. Mary City, to reflect their world view. At the center of the city was the home of the mayor of St. Mary City. From that point, streets were laid out that created two triangles. Located at two points of the triangle, extending to the west, were the first Maryland State House and a jail. Extending to the north of the mayor's home, the remaining two points of the second triangle were defined by the Catholic church and school. The design of the city was a literal separation of church and state that reinforced the importance of religious freedom. The largest site of the original Maryland colony, St. Mary City, was the seat of colonial government until 1708. Okay, Deb, can I stop you a minute? Yeah. Okay, I don't like how they said about separation of church and state. There was no such thing. And when you get into more of it, reading about it, it's because there was always... Well, we, I just want to refute. There was no such thing in the colonies as separation of church and state. There's no such thing right now in our United States as well. Well, in this that separation of church and state does not mean that there can be no church in the state and no state in the church. That's not what they mean. They mean the separation of church and state. You have to realize that most of the colonies at this time in the 1600s were you know, from England, you know, the British Isles. And the state religion of Britain was the um, uh, the, the Anglican Church. And if you weren't Anglican, were persecuted as the Catholics were. And well, and the Puritans came over here, the Quakers came over here because they were persecuted in England and other countries. Right, and the Catholics were run out of Canada. So any uh, any of the British Empire went to the Church of England, the Anglican Church. And if you weren't, if you didn't go to the Anglican Church and believe in, in all that and, you know, kowtow to what the king said, the queen, you were persecuted and um that's what they meant by separation of church and state. I mean, it was a literal separation, whereas the state could not make you go to a certain church and the church not make the state do certain things under, you know, the church rule. It was the literal separation. There was no, you know, and which is what we have today. It, it, and they wanted the freedom of religion. I mean, that was the whole point the Catholics went there. And they really, you know, um, for, you know, enforced tolerance of religion. 
different religions. So we have it backwards today, whereas you know, separation of church and state means there can be no God in the government and there can be no government in the church. And that's just totally bullshit. Oh, excuse me. Um, <laughs> that's what it is. <laughs> they have it <clears throat> totally backwards. Uh, it just meant that the government couldn't uh, force you to go to a certain, and churches were not sponsored. Right. Okay, go ahead. Because Anglicanism had become the official religion in Virginia, a band of Puritans in 1642 left for Maryland, and they founded Providence, now called Annapolis. In 1650, the Puritans revolted against the proprietary government. They set up a new government prohibiting both Catholic, 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 Catholicism and Anglicanism. Oh, God, I, I'm having a tough time doing it. In March 1655, the second Lord Baltimore sent an army under Governor William Stone to put down this revolt near Annapolis. His Roman Catholic army was decisively defeated by a Puritan army in the Battle of the Severn. The Puritan revolt lasted until 1658 when the Calvert family regained control and reenacted the Toleration Act. The Puritan revolutionary government persecuted Maryland Catholics during its reign. Mobs burned down all the original Catholic churches of southern Maryland in 1708. The seat of government was moved to Providence and renamed Annapolis, in honor of Queen Anne. St. Mary's City is now an archaeological site uh, with a small tourist center. Just as the city plan for St. Mary's City reflected the ideals of the founders, the city plan of Annapolis reflected those in power at the turn of the 18th century. The plan of Annapolis extends from two circles at the center of the city, one including the State House and the other the Anglican St. Anne's Church, now Episcopal, the plan reflected a stronger relationship between church and state and a colonial government more closely aligned with the Protestant church. So, as you can see, um, you know, the, the religion played a big part in the governance um, and lack of religion played a big, you know, the, the not wanting the government to do be involved, and, and then, of course, you know, the Puritans, which were persecuted by the Anglicans in England, and oh, so it, they really tried for tolerance in Maryland, but it was a back-and-forth thing. I mean, they fought a war, you know, little little war, but they, they did have a little war, a religious war. And then from 1763 to 1767, Charles Mason and Jeremiah Dixon surveyed Maryland's northern boundary line with Pennsylvania. In 1791, Maryland ceded land to form the District of Columbia. And that's how the Mason-Dixon line came to be, Charles Mason and Jeremiah Dixon. Ta-da! Um, so, so you can see that Maryland had quite a tumultuous um, uh, century, and uh, so it, it eventually ended up um, where they kind of just had the Catholics there and, you know, the Puritans there and the the Anglicans government. and But, oh, my goodness. So I thought that was really interesting because you don't read that so much in the other colonies. I mean, William Penn came in 
and, uh, you know, set up Pennsylvania, and then the Quakers followed. And, and he didn't start out a Quaker, but um, he was just totally enthralled with the Quaker religion. And so that was their safe haven. And, uh, of course, the Puritans were in Massachusetts, and then eventually people got tired of their, you know, very strict way of living. And they uh, a lot of them fled to Virginia, and then they had to flee to Maryland. Um, and that didn't work, you know. So, you know, the separation of church and state is only having to do with... Steph. Yeah? You read that whole article? Yeah. I thought it was a lot longer than that. I have to pull that up. I thought it was a really long article. Well, it is, but, you know, it goes into the War of 1812 and then onward. Um, But this is Maryland. We're not doing the Reformation. I mean, we we can... The next one is... The, uh, do you, um, hold on, I'm getting it up. Yeah, get your little list up, because the Catholics versus Protestants come after you in the list you gave me the other night. I was This is tobacco. Tobacco. Are you doing the Maryland.gov with the end history AFPX? Let me see. Um, oh, no. <laughs> that was pre-colonial. This is, um, no, that's no, Maryland's that's, history, pre-colonial history? Yeah, that's what I just did. Okay, and you went all the way to right before Maryland's history and time? Yes. Okay, I just wanted to make sure. I thought I, I didn't, wasn't sure if I heard it right or not. Yes. Okay. So, All right. So that's the separation of church and state. It's, it's not that, you know, there's, there can be no spiritual religion in spiritual is religion in the government. It's that the government cannot um, have, you know, cannot have a state-sponsored um, mandated church, you know, like just Church of England, which is you know the Puritans and the Quakers and then um, oh the 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 ones that um, Moravians, even the Baptists had a hard time when they finally came in. They were persecuted too. So you know if you weren't you know Church of England Protestant, you were a cast off, um, not welcome. Pre-revolutionary. Okay, so now we're going to get into the fa- the uh, the women behind the signers of the Declaration of Independence. Now, we're going to start with Charles Carroll, who married his cousin Mary Molly Darnell, and they had seven children, but only three of which made it to adulthood. So I'm going to start highlighting her. And I'm going to womenshistoryblog.com, so I'm yes. going to kind of be jumping around into this um, article. So, uh, let's see. 
Um, okay. Mary Darnell, daughter of Colonel Henry Darnell, was a young lady of beauty, fortune, and ancient family. Charles Carroll married Mary Darnell, his cousin, on June 5, 1768, and begun major improvements to his family home and gardens in Annapolis. They had seven children, only three survived to adulthood, Mary, Charles Jr., and Kitty. Um, they had seven children. I just did all right, that already. Uh, their only son would later live at Homewood, now located on the Baltimore campus of John Hopkins University. Carroll, described often as the wealthiest man in the colonies, had a substantial house built for each of his children. Yeah. Charles and Mary Carroll became busy and gracious hosts to such dignitaries and governmental leaders as George Washington and the Marquis de Lafayette. Lafayette. Lafayette, sorry. Lafayette. <laughs> I'm now getting the disease from you. No, I'm sorry about that. <laughs> fuzzy tongue, fuzzy tongue. I've I, I got, got to comb it. The house and grounds were the scene for many social events. Politics kept the family busy through the Revolutionary War, and in 1783, their Annapolis estate was the site of the official state celebration for peace and independence. Now, going back, because most of this is about Jane, uh, Charles Carroll. Charles Carroll of Carlington was born in Annapolis, Maryland, September 30th, 1737. Like I said, they don't have anything on, much on Mary where she was born or anything, which is amazing because her father was a colonel, which would be a colonel in the French and Indian War. Um, September 30th, 1737, he was born at the home of his parents, Charles Carroll of Annapolis and Elizabeth Brooke. Charles and his mother enjoyed mutual tenderness and affection, but it was his father's intense love and rigorous discipline that formed his character and gave him the skills and drive to succeed. A brilliant businessman, Carroll of Annapolis, expanded his lands and capital and made his son at an heir worthy and fit to receive them. Now, that's my alarm I have to turn on. Do you have Annapolis up yet? I do. Okay, let's talk about Annapolis because two of the signers are from there and how important it was. Okay. Okay. This is from visitannapolis.org, uh, a brief history. In 1649, an English community emerged on the land that now makes up Maryland's capital. Puritans seeking religious freedom nestled into a spot on the western shore of Chesapeake Bay and called their new town Providence. This small settlement grew, eventually becoming named Anne Arundel's town after the wife of Lord Baltimore. By the late 1600s, Anne Arundel's town housed most of the 25,000 residents in the Maryland province, and in 1694, Royal Governor Sir Francis Nicholson chose it as the provincial capital because of its central location. Nicholas renamed this new capital Annapolis in honor of Princess Anne, who became Queen of England in 1702. He directed the city be built following a grand Baroque street plan similar to the great capitals of Europe. The highest town circle revolved uh, the highest town circle revolved around the Capitol building. The second highest circle featured an Anglican church. Residential areas, merchants, districts, and schools sprouted up around these centers. In the 1700s, Annapolis led the political, cultural, and economic climates in the colonies. 
Construction of what is now Annapolis' famed Maryland State House began in 1772. The State House has since hosted numerous monumental events, including General George Washington's resignation from the Continental Army in 1783. Present-day visitors can step inside the old Senate chamber where this event occurred. Congress also ratified the Treaty of Paris here on January 14, 1784, which ended the American Revolution. And in 1786, the Maryland State House hosted the Annapolis Convention, where delegates from five states convened to discuss changes to the Articles of Confederation. The Maryland State House is the first and only state house to serve as the nation's capital, with federal government's government operations transpiring inside from November 1783 to August 1784. The Maryland State House now endures as the oldest state house in continuous legislative use. And that's the uh, brief history of Annapolis. So it, like I said, it was really a, a leader amongst the colonies, especially in, in the mid to late 1700s. And you know, and, and as we read from the history of Maryland, its beginnings were, you know, basically a, a hotbed of, of religious um, uh, disagreements. So there you have it. And Annapolis is, is uh, where our, our first couple, Mary Carol and, and Thomas, or Charles, um, yeah, Charles, you know, well, Charles was born in Annapolis, and they lived in the area, and they were they were very well off. And he was he was, uh, you know, he, I mean, imagine. Okay, at the time, uh, the wife of of a, a man such as as Charles Carroll would be taking care of the household, and you know, and all the accounts and the children, and the education of the children, the servants, and, you know, the care of, the hiring, the firing, and all that. And and so their their, their property would, you know, their, their uh, household property would be under her care. Plus, she had to be the hostess with the mostest, you know, with all the, the dinners I imagine that they had um, on a continuous basis as he was in politics and a businessman. So I imagine there was a lot of, um, you know, entertaining and things like that. So, um, But as she was a, you know, she came from a well-to-do ancient family, she would have been raised in all the fine arts of uh, social uh, necessities and, you know, the cultural um, means of the day. So, you know, being the wife didn't mean you sat around on your chaise alone, you know, eating bonbons. You were up at dawn to get the household ready and, and make sure everybody was off doing what they were supposed to do. And I imagine uh, she was here and there and and then there were people to visit, and people came to visit, and you had to, you know, all the social niceties that they observed. And, um, and then there was church, and you know, I mean, you know, you so many people think of these aristocratic women it, it, like they were in England, which was totally different here, because these women were their husbands' partners, 
you know, they ran their, their household and their properties like a business because a lot of them were. You know, either it was in, you know, you were a merchant, an importer, export, exporter, or you were a plantation owner. Or, you know, like up north you had farms, you didn't have plantations. I mean, Ad, John Adams, I think he had, uh, was it, um, he had, what, four farms? I mean, so it was a business. So they, they, they kept them socially perceived as being the wife, you know, the, the wonderful mother, the, the helpful wife. But they were basically their, their husband's business partners, my estimation. Never mind their, their children's, um, um, you know, education manager. So there's that. And uh, apparently she did her job very well because he was very successful. Um, and I believe she was, uh, from what I, I could read about her, she, she must have been educated also. Um, and, and being Catholic, you know, she, she would um, know that also. So... Uh, I mean, you have to remember that um, in England, in England um, you know, Catholics were, well, you have to know about Bloody Mary, but uh, who, who reigned before um, Elizabeth I took over, and she was Protestant, but Catholic, Mary was Catholic, and, you know, they she burned what, over, like, between 200 and 300 um, Catholics, she burned them. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, religion had a lot. You know, it was a hot topic. Imagine the, uh, and then the fact that these two were Catholics and most of the people that they met were Protestants. In England, um, I mean, there were, the England placed, uh, restrictions on Catholics that uh, in, in the most most of the 1700s, Catholics couldn't hold a public office, practice law, vote, educate their children in their faith, or worship in public. So there you are. And, and I found this fascinating because I was raised Protestant and I had a lot of Catholic friends. And so this this. This whole, um, I didn't know this much about Maryland. Um, we haven't talked about Maryland very much because, like I say, it was basically bypassed by the Revolutionary War, you know, battles and, and whatnot. But they they did, they were, they were, you know, involved in different ways. Your alarm went off. Are you still there? Susan, did you mute yourself? I don't know where Susan is. Come back, Susan. Oh, she hung up. I think she she has lost connection. She lives way up in the mountains, so we never know if she's going to be here the whole show or not. Um, we don't. So we're waiting for Susan to come back. But while we're waiting for Susan to come back, speaking of the the highly uh, contentious. Um, 
religious conflicts that they had. Um, let's see. Let me get to the the. Uh, there's a wonderful article if you are interested in you know our background in in re, you know the religious background of you know, the people that were here in the 1600s and England, you can go to um, austincc.edu, and they have a wonderful article on the history um, of the Protestant Reformation in America. Are you back? I am going to take this phone and throw it across the room. (laughs) I'm going to smash it into a million pieces. I have I have had those feelings. Yes, I understand. And I was telling the people that you know we we don't always know if you can you know get through the whole show without some, because you live up in the mountains. So. And we are having a snowstorm right now. Oh yeah. Anyway, where are you? Well, I was just gonna um, I was discussing some of the the things between the Protestants and and the Catholics just in general, and, and I was just going to start the the Protestant um, Reformation article uh, that we could talk about, you know, the, the Catholics and the Protestants. Okay, so you did the Catholics already? No, I didn't. I haven't gotten into that. Oh, okay, so you were just overviewing. Yeah, I was just overviewing and going to start the article. Okay. Well, we'll go back to Carol because actually that's what's up next is what you're going to be reading. Yes. So. Okay. So what, we'll wait. Hold on that, and I'll go through some of this with um, Charles Carroll, and then we'll get to that because um, it, it does make a, a big deal here about it. Yes. Okay. So um, a brilliant. So we looked at we did Annapolis and how important it was because two of the signers are going to be from Annapolis. Mm-hmm. And. And and this is where we're getting in. And and in this article, it says this. Although Maryland had been founded by and for Catholics on the basis of religious toleration in 1634, in 1649, and again in 1689, severe restrictions were placed on Catholics in England. The laws were also changed in Maryland, and Catholicism was repressed. Between 1690 and the beginning of the American Revolution, Catholics could no longer hold public office, practice law, vote, educate their children in their faith, or worship in public. Um, And then I'm going to go down here. Confined to private life by Maryland statutes against Catholics, Charles Carroll joined his father in managing the extensive agricultural and business interests that constituted their fortune. By the 1770s, the Carrolls owned almost 40,000 acres of land, more slaves, 330, than anyone else in Maryland, and a share in a profitable ironworks called the Baltimore Company. They also collected rents from some 195 tenants and were the greatest money lenders in the colony. Maryland Catholics zealously guarded their fortunes by marrying into other Catholic families. And that's really important to see how uh, constricted they were, and that's really important that what Deb is going to bring up. Yes. I mean, you don't hear about this very much unless you read about, you know, the religious history of our country. And, of course, you know, anything religious is so, um, you know, it's a, you don't talk about it. It's not politically correct unless you're, 
you know, resisting it or something. But it's very fascinating when you when you get into the history of it um, and how, you know, from the beginning, um, you know, pre-Constantinople and then into the Roman Catholic Church and then the, the Protestant and Luther and all that. Oh, my gosh. But we're not going to get quite into that because we'd be here all night. Um, let me see. Uh, where is it now? I have to. Oh, this is such a long article. Uh, I'm trying to find the part where we want to start. Okay. So here. I'll start here. Okay. And this is this is uh this is basically um the oh gosh it's it's so hard to know where to start um there was the the uh like I mentioned before it was the the uh Mary Queen of Scots known as Bloody Mary um came in after her father died and uh yeah, she burned 300 Protestants Inquisition style rather than the traditional English manner of dragging, drawing, near hanging, castration, and disembowelment, or, and quartering. Um, and and then she, under Mary England, rejoined the Catholic Church, and she, she cemented ties with Catholic Spain by marrying Philip II, Charles V's son. After Mary died from cancer, her stepsister Elizabeth, Henry, and Anne Boleyn's daughter vied for the throne with her Scottish cousin Mary Stuart, known as Queen of Scots. Uh, Catholics in England and across Europe hoped that Mary, Queen of Scots, would win out and establish a dynasty through her marriage to young Francis II of France. A papal bull had excommunicated Elizabeth as a heretical, her, heretical bastard child after Henry VIII beheaded her mother, Anne Boleyn. And Elizabeth spent time imprisoned in the Tower of London, but Elizabeth got the upper hand after Francis' death, imprisoned Mary Stuart for 18 years, and eventually signed her death warrant after becoming convinced that Mary was conspiring to overthrow her. Elizabeth went easier on Catholics than Bloody Mary had on Protestants, usually letting them practice as long as they laid low, pled their oath, and paid their taxes to the Protestant Church of England. According to the law of the land, though, outright Catholic priests could be tortured and executed. So that was, that was um, you know, that was where they were coming from when, you know, we got into the 1600s. Um, it was, uh, uh, let's see, with Mary, Queen of Scots dead in their hopes of an English alliance, the spurn Spanish proceeded with plans to conquer the Misty Isle. In England and overthrow Elizabeth, um, but that didn't work out so well. And then the storm in the English Channel was God's breath, similar for hysterians to the divine wind in Japanese tradition that defended that island from Chinese invaders in the 13th century. The conclusion in England's case was obvious. God preferred Protestants to Catholics. This unfolded right when England con coveted the riches Spain was plundering from America. Now they wanted some for themselves. And under Elizabeth, Protestantism cloaked England's patriotic identity and their religion superiority justified why America should be theirs, not Spain's. Elizabeth's approval ratings were probably soaring at this point, though it's hard to tell because she outlawed criticism and polling didn't exist. 
England defeated the Spanish again outside Cadiz in 1596. England's colonizing efforts had barely begun when Elizabeth died childish, childish in 1603. Power passed to none other than Mary, Queen of Scots' son, James Stuart, now James I of England, in the House of Tudor gave way to the House of Stuart. And under James and his successor, Charles I, the center didn't hold in England religiously. The Church of England vacillated, leaving neither Catholics nor Protestants satisfied. James relied on Catholic support throughout Europe to lay claim to the crown after Elizabeth's death and promised increased tolerance toward Catholics as long as they continued to lay low and pay their taxes. However, it wasn't enough, and in 1605, Catholic terrorists, led by Robert Gatsby, Catesby and Guy Fawkes tried unsuccessfully to blow King and the whole company, um, Parliament, when they should there assemble in Parliament with 36 barrels of gunpowder stashed in a basement vault under Westminster Palace, connected by a tunnel to an adjacent house. And unfortunately, they uh, they caught uh, Fawkes red-handed um, before he could blow things up. For centuries afterward, including in colonial America, Protestants celebrated the failed gunpowder plot, and often with the Pope or Fox burned in effigy, and England still celebrates what's evolved into bonfire night on November 5th. So now, with Catholics on the defensive, Protestants transcribed the Bible in the King James Version, is still the most famous in the English language. Then in the Catholic drift under Charles I, persecution toward extreme Protestant that is, reformed Calvinist, reared its ugly head once more. Yet, as that was happening, England's conquest of neighboring Ireland emboldened Protestants because of Ireland's Catholicism. Exaggerated reports of violence against English soldiers in Ulster, made possible by the recently freed press, stoked a patriotic Protestantism similar to what the Spanish Armada had been. One of the military leaders in charge of suppressing the Irish Oliver Cromwell, rose quickly in popularity and eventually took over England. According to the Calvinist reading of the Book of Daniel, kings who ruled in an ungodly fashion had to be overthrown, and Charles had dissolved Parliament. And then you have the English civil wars between Cromwell's parliamentary and Protestant roundheads and royalist cavaliers, which resulted in Charles I's decapitation, an 11-year interim known as the Commonwealth, a republic with no monarchy, and Cromwell serving as leader until his son took over after his death. Roundheads took their defeat of Charles as evidence that he wasn't divinely ordained. Thus, they rationalized killing him partly because they defeated him. Protestant onlookers soaked their handkerchiefs in Charles' blood to symbolize the purification of their revolution. And people think that politics are tough here in, you know, our country right now. While the moniker returned in 1660 to Charles' son, Charles II, during the Restoration, the English kings never regained the absolute forms of dictatorship enjoyed by other European leaders, especially after an, another uprising known as the Glorious Revolution of 1688. They had to share power with an increasingly powerful parliament ministers. These early Republican revolutions in England set the stage for the American uprising a century later, when colonial rebel leaders needed to look no further than their own native country for the seeds of their own revolution, tracing all the way back to the Magna Carta 
of the 13th century. Republicanism, as yearned for and practiced in colonial America, originated in the English Reformation, and this is why we're not a democracy. We are a republic, and there's a big difference. So, now, in the midst of the English turmoil, a small group of radical Protestant pilgrims had seen enough and slipped away across the big pond to America on the Mayflower, aiming for but missing Virginia. Another, another larger group of more mainstream Puritans followed a decade later. These Calvinists missed out on the dramatic English Civil War, but founded colonies in New England that later became part of the U.S. Their colony of Massachusetts instigated the Revolutionary War against England 150 years later. So... The Reformation impacted these colonists and others in many ways. The Renaissance was important because it gave rise to the navigational technology and mercantilist economies that drove Europeans overseas in pursuit of material wealth. Yes, the origin of the colonies was not just religious, it was also economic. Augmented in, in this, uh, no, the Reformation, though, inspired missionaries and religious refugees to come to America augmented a rivalry with Spain that inspired England to claim Virginia and inspired Calvinists to settle New England. Protestants also put a premium on earning worldly wealth, dovetailing their religious motivations to colonize with the economic motivations. American colonists were familiar with the English Civil War in which Protestant Republicans rose up and challenged a monarchy, laying a foundation for the American Revolution. The American Protestants often suspected Papist Catholic colonists in Canada, Maryland, or elsewhere of conspiring against them with Indians, adding another complication to frontier warfare. Even aside from the English Civil War, the Reformation encouraged democratic revolt against authority, and Protestants thrived in areas of Europe like Switzerland, the Netherlands, and England that contained small pockets of Republican rule. These were the same areas that embraced capitalism. Just as Martin Luther rebelled against the top-down authority of the Catholic Church, dissenters in both England and colonial America rebelled against the divinely ordained authority of monarchies. Protestants also emphasized equality among worshipers, and that carried over into a similar emphasis on equality that slowly but surely worked its way into American politics in its revolution in the 21st century. Okay, can you stop a minute? Now, when we were talking about the founding of Maryland, didn't they try the monarch feudal thing in the beginning? Yes. And we rejected it, right? Yes. Okay, because I thought that was interesting. That's the only colony that tried that. The other colonies that came over here because, and the only reason they did that is because this is all they've known, you know? That's why our form of government is the, the most, it's the, the most new form of government in the history of the entire world. Well, that's it. That's why Ben Franklin called it the great experiment. It had never right. been before. Exactly. And the other colonies, they tried collectivism. Yes. And it didn't work. And they, they're actually in Jamestown, and they died. The pilgrims almost died as well yes. on the first winter. So this was the first colony to try monarch slash feudalism, which I thought was fascinating. Yes, and it didn't last long. Oh no, they we were they revolted. They were like, uh uh-uh, uh, we ain't, we're in a brand new brave world and, and it wouldn't have worked anyway because of the land being so wild. Right. And I think that was that's 
that was our saving grace as well for the United States to be created because when they first came here, it wasn't settled land. So they had to, and we've talked about this over and over again, they had to find great new different ways of even looking at uh, surviving for a night. Yes. Yes. Okay, continue. Okay. American Protestants developed a greater sense of religious freedom than their European counterparts. While the early settlers were far from tolerant in the modern sense of the term and maintained generally anti-Catholic, anti-Quaker, and anti-Semitic views, religious pluralism made America fertile soil for long-term toleration. To it, there were so many different groups that it was in everyone's best interest to get along. Otherwise, their own group could easily be the next target of discrimination, just as likely had already been the target at some point previously. It took a long time for the new dynamic to play out. For one thing, despite pluralism among Puritans, Quakers, Baptists, free thinkers, etc., English law still applied in the British colonies. All landowners still had to pay a tithe, also known as a tax, to the Church of England, regardless of their faith. Such laws continued within various states even after American independence. Yet in 1790, 183 years after the Mayflower landing, the first American president, George Washington, wrote a letter to the Hebrew congregation in Newport, Rhode Island, guaranteeing their full citizenship. The father of the country boldly stated that the U.S. government offered to bigotry no sanction and to persecution no assistance. Everyone shall sit in safety under his own vine and fig tree, and there shall be none to make him afraid. I love that. I love that. Washington not only disliked religious intolerance, He idealistically even hoped that tolerance would become obsolete because the concept implied the potential power or desire of one group to dominate another. He didn't take this stance lightly, telling a British historian, I walk on untrodden ground. Many of the early state governments didn't comply with these ideals, continuing to charge tithes of their own and denying full citizenship to Jews, Catholics, deists, and atheists but the national government set a very high standard in comparison to most of the states to say nothing of what went on in England and Europe in previous centuries. Washington's words were a far cry from Martin Luther's in On the Jews and Their Lives. After passage of the 14th Amendment in 1868, American states had to fall in line with the religious freedom guaranteed in the First Amendment. Um, Let's see. Dozens of Protestant denominations, including Baptists, Presbyterians, Methodists, Church of Christ, and Mormons, would put their own distinctly American stamp on the Reformation. What they didn't impact as directly, as some people argue, is the founding of the United States as an official legally Christian nation, and neither can we connect the New England pilgrims to the founding as easily some might try to do. New England's colonial history was well-known, important, and influential to the founders, some of whom shared their views. But New England was just one of several colonial regions, and Pennsylvania and Virginia pioneered models of religious freedom that influenced the Constitution more than the Pilgrim Puritan Society. The Pilgrim sense of religious freedom is overrated unless one defines freedom merely as a desire to not be discriminated against. That sense of religious freedom is cheap, though, considering that everyone in the world, past or present, would agree with it. 
Compared to Massachusetts, colonists in Rhode Island, Pennsylvania, Connecticut, Maryland, and eventually Virginia set a higher, more meaningful standard of religious freedom, defined not just as fleeing one's own persecution, but as living alongside and not persecuting those with different views. Virginians Jane Madison and Thomas Jefferson co-authored the First Amendment to the Constitution in 1791, and Jefferson as president coined the phrase separation of church and state in a letter to Baptists. Um, that future judges used to interpret the amendment. So, uh, yeah, um, that is, you know, and and if you ever can read the the letter from the Baptist, I think it was Connecticut, um, and read his reply. You have to read the letter that they wrote to him because they were afraid the government was to put a wall up against them, and Jefferson basically replied, no, 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 the state will not command you to worship a government religion. You know, and this fight that goes on all the time in our country about this, of separation of church and state, nobody, except conservatives, and, and very few conservatives bring it up, brings this up, because that is the basis for what the First Amendment means. Right. You have those, to read. Letters, those letters are the basis for all of this. Most of the colonists were under the Church of England. You know, they came from England, and because free, you know, United States of America, the King of England, that was their government. All the colonies didn't matter. It was all the colony colonies were under the rule of the king and parliament in England. And that's why the First Amendment is so important, especially to the founders, because of, you know, the money that they had to send to the Church of England, whether they went to the church, that, you know, church or not. Um, and and so they, they didn't want the government to say, you know, have a state, you know, um, state-sponsored church that mandated everyone belong to that church. They wanted freedom of religion, not from religion. That's Exactly. Okay, so that brings the basis for Charles Carroll. I'm going to go back a little bit and tell you about his... Um, education, but I wanted to get in that he married his cousin, and Mary is the the wife of one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence from from Maryland, and she also was a Catholic, and the reason that they um, married Catholics married Catholics, and actually the same reason with um, the uh, Jews, because they want to keep, they, they want to keep their fortunes together in the same religion, because as you know, the Jews were very persecuted. They were the first slaves, everybody, uh, not the blacks. So he married another Catholic, and she's well-to-do as, as well. He's very wealthy. His family's very wealthy. So known as Charlie to his parents, Charles Carroll was sent at the age of 10 to Maryland's Eastern Shore to study secretly at the Jesuit school at Bohemia Manor in Sealy County. 
By 1749, Charlie was sent to study at St. Almire's in French Flanders. He was instructed in classical studies in Paris and by 1760 was studying English law at the Inner Temple in London. After the death of his mother, a refined and well-educated Carol returned home after 16 years abroad. Upon his return to America in 1765, Charlie was given a 10,000-acre tract called Car Carlton in Frederick County. Although he would never live there, he became known as Charles Carroll of Carleton to distinguish him from the other Charles Carrolls in his family. As the only son of his generation, he became heir not only to the largest fortune in colonial Maryland, but to the ancestral legacy of defending family and faith passed down by the Carrolls. They were, they were very religious. They were very much Catholic. And then I had gone into what, um, that his uh, family owned this large plantation, and then he married Mary, and that he, and they both ended up being busy and gracious hosts to such dignitaries and governmental leaders as George Washington. I said all that. And let's see. Uh, okay. So now we're getting into how he's going to sign the Declaration of Independence. Carroll gained a chance to enter politics on the eve of the American Revolution when Maryland's colonial government began to crumble. So they, the reason it's crumbling is because the leaders were appointees from King George. And again, they're imposing their will, as Deb explained, from the Church of England. And this is a primarily Catholic, which with the minority of it being the Protestants, but they held all of the, well, the Church of England, they held all of the offices. And, you know, the same exact, they did the same exact thing in Ireland. But because we were in the Americas, they didn't have the same grasp that they had in Ireland. Otherwise, we would have been doing the same thing that Ireland went through for hundreds and hundreds of years because, because England did the same thing. They, they separated by Catholic part of uh, Ireland, half Protestant, half Catholic, and only the Protestants could own land or, you know, have any kind of office. And that's what caused the conflict, the Irish conflict. That's what caused it. It was a religious, it was a religious war, and it was caused by England. Um, let's see. Let's see. Uh, okay. It's then the Maryland's colonial government began to crumble. Not only were Roman Catholics in Maryland prohibited from voting, but all persons of every faith and no first faith were taxed to support the established church. And that's exactly what Deb just brought up. Whether you belong to it or not, you still had to pay them. The Church of England. The discussion as to the right of taxation for the support of religion soon extended from the legislature to the public press. Under the pen name, The First Citizen, Carroll wrote a series of articles in the Maryland Gazette that maintained the right of the colonies to control their own taxation and attacked the validity, validity of the law imposing the tax. As a result, he gained public acclaim for embracing the principle that the power to govern derived from the consent of the governed and emerged as a true praetorate. Now, he is doing all this, and Mary's at home taking care of the children, taking care of the large estate that they have and interacting with all the, the, the dignitaries that are coming through because now things are starting to heat up going into the Revolutionary War. So she's got a huge responsibility and she's also a Catholic so she's being persecuted in her, in her uh, area as well. Um, so even though we don't know a lot about her, 
Deb, we know that she's going through a, a big hardship as well to follow her husband and what he believes, right? Well, that's it. I mean, she had two things going against her. She was a Catholic, number one, and her husband was a Catholic. And he was also becoming a rebel, treasonous against the king. So, you know, there was a lot riding on their shoulders, um, and they didn't know uh, how it was going to turn out, but they knew, you know, he was a man of principle, and he believed in, in uh, you know, the the consent of the governed uh, um, principle. So, you know, he right then, he just, <laughs> he was headed for, uh, you know, the rope, as was his family. Yes, and like, and that's great that you said that, too, because she did have a lot riding on this. Mm-hmm. And she had children to take care of, as all, our, as all of our wonderful ladies did at the time. And again, it, uh, I, I'm, not, I'm not even going to give them any more credence to this stupid woman's march thing. <laughs> it, it, it's just, it's absurd. It's I absurd. Know. Just really. Um, oh, and I do, I do want to do, say one thing, but not about that. The lamestream media is in their glory right now because they got to, I mean, USA Today had like 15 articles on this yes. because they got to embrace their, the communism and get away from the scary Americans that we are. Yeah, um, and the fact that the pro-life march will be next week weekend, I wonder how many articles there will be on that. I know, I know. Okay, let's see. Uh, da, 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 da. His position in the emerging, emerging revolutionary movement became clear in 1773. Carroll also signed a resolution in May 1774 in which he agreed to stop all importation from and exportation to Great Britain until the repeal of the Intolerable Act. A series of five laws passed by the British Parliament relating to the American colonies. The acts sparked outrage and resistance and were important developments in the growth of the American Revolution. Many colonists viewed these acts as an arbitrary violation of their rights, and in 1774 they organized the First Continental Congress to coordinate a protest. Carroll was elected with six others by the citizens of Anne Ardell County, Annapolis, to the Second Maryland Convention in November 1774, with full power to represent them in the provincial convention. This was Carroll's first elected office, which in effect lifted the ban on Catholics serving in public office. Carroll was from this time for a period of 27 years called to important public service on behalf of the colony. The convention adopted the Association of Freemen of Maryland, which became the charter of the colony until the adoption of the Maryland Constitution in 1776. The association was pledged to an armed resistance against Great Britain. Carroll was appointed by the convention one of a committee of nine to consider the ways and means to put this providence in the best state of defense. On January 11, 1776, the Maryland Convention instructed the Maryland delegates to the Continental Congress to disavow in the most solemn manner all design the colonies for independence. 
On June 28, 1776, the Maryland Convention withdrew its previous instructions to its delegates to Congress and authorized them to vote in declaring the United States free and independent state. Principally responsible for this change of attitude in Maryland was Charles Carroll, who was rewarded by being elected as a delegate to the Continental Congress on July 4th. He took his seat on July 18th and with the rest of the delegates of the 13 states signed the Declaration of Independence on August 2nd, 1776, when the parchment copy was ready to be signed. See, it wasn't until August 2nd. Every, nobody knows that, but that's when, it's not July 4th, August 2nd. With the Declaration of Independence, all the bias and restrictions against Catholics in Maryland ended. Carroll was the only Roman Catholic to sign the Declaration. And of all the signers, he risked the most financially. His worth being estimated at $2 million. And on July 19, 1776, Carroll was appointed to the Board of War, which they, instead of defense, they should go back. I wish Trump would just go back and call it the Department of War. Yes. A very important committee, which was in charge of all the executive duties of the military department. Mary Ann Carroll died in 1782. Uh, let's see, do I need to do this? Uh, well, he, Carol, he helped finance the war. We'll just tell him that. Um, Mary Down Nile Carroll died in 1782 at the age of 33, having born seven children. She was weakened by a laudanum dependency and heartbroken by the death of her father-in-law 10 days earlier in a horse riding accident. The nearly simultaneous death of his father and his wife left Carol a widower with small children, but he never remarried. So she was a laudanum was a was a, a syrup um, like a morphine syrup. Yeah, it's opiate. Oh. Yeah, made Right. Um, Charles Carroll of Carlton died on November fourteenth, eighteen thirty-two. Carol, Carol died at the Canton home at the age of ninety-five. Wow, she died at ninety-three, and he lived to ninety-five. Hmm. Wow, and he never remarried, which is unusual. Usually they have, like, two of the signers have two wives. So, um, wow. Okay. Okay, upon his death on November 14, 1832, President Andrew Jackson closed the federal government and declared a national day of mourning, an honor accorded only once before to George Washington. Charles Carroll's address to, on the anniversary of the Declaration of Independence, August 6th. Grateful to Almighty God for the blessing which, through Jesus Christ our Lord, he has conferred upon my beloved country in her emancipation upon myself, in permitting me, under circumstances of mercy, to live to the age of 89 years, and to survive the 50th year of American independence, and certifying by my present signature my approbation of the Declaration of Independence adopted by Congress on the fourth day of July, in the year of our Lord, 1776 which I originally subscribed on the second day of August of the same year, and which I'm now the last surviving signer. I do hereby recommend to the present and future generations the principles of that important document as the best earthly inheritance their ancestors could bequeath to them, and pray that the civil and religious liberties they have secured to my country may be perpetrated to the mode of prosperity and extended to the whole family of man. Yeah, curse those white slave owners. You know, I would have loved <laughs> had a bullhorn 
and read this to yes. all the protesters. Ah, I know. And he was speaking of slaves. He was a slave owner, and he had, um, at the time of the revolution, he owned between 400 and 500 blacks. But he became president of the American Colonization Society, seeking to solve America's slaves problem by resettling them in Africa. I mean, you have to realize that people had come into the slave owning, you know, a lot of them by inheritance and that's the way it was. And then they were looking at it and, and you know, because of the enlightenment and the, 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 the war for liberty, you know, all men are created equal. I mean, they took this seriously, but they understood what they were up against. You know, if, if they, they screamed and hollered about, you know, and tried to do away with the slaves, uh, the, the ownership of slaves, the southern colonies, unfortunately, would not have played a part in the freedom of the, the country. So it's a lot more complicated than they would, you know, basically have you believe. And you have to also, as I say so many times, read history in the context of the time. Not from, you know, through 21st century eyes, but you must understand the time. Well, and everyone everyone poo-poo's the Declaration of the Indep- of Independence, but the Declaration is actually our founding document, mm-hmm. not the, not the not the uh, Constitution. It's the, the Declaration of Independence. The Constitution was written from the Declaration of Independence. Yeah, it's based <laughs> on the Declaration independence of Independence. Gave birth to the Constitution. Exactly. It, well, right now it gave birth to first the uh, Articles of Confederation, which did not work. They didn't want to. So yeah. we went back to the original document to to do the, the, the Constitution, and they did form a new government with the Constitution. They did. Everyone says, no, they didn't. Oh, yes, they did. They weren't supposed to. That's why in the beginning the New York delegation walked out because they were like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah. You're, you're, you're you're making a whole new government. Well, they ended up making a whole new government. That's why this convention of states is not going to work, people. We need to get back to the Constitution. You need to take your own state back. A convention of states, they're not going to do it because the states do not know the Constitution, nor have they even looked at the Declaration of Independence in God knows how long. Well, that's it. And And the thing is, yes, there are amendments that must be rid of. We must be rid of certain amendments. And that is a whole different thing than you know, Convention of States. That's just um, ending the Constitution, not throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Well, yeah, we need to get rid of the 14th, the 16th, and the 17th Amendment. Yeah. They need to go. But anyway, so that was our first signer and his wife, Mary. And now we're going to, Deb is going to be highlighting our second one, and and it does look like this is going to be a part two, Deb. I know. (laughs) Yeah. No, we shall see. Okay. okay, so the next one is going to be Samuel Chase. Hold on, let me find this. Yeah, Samuel Chase. And he married Anne Nancy Baldwin um, in May of 1762. And then she died 
1776, and then he married Hannah Kitty Giles right before the signing of the Treaty of Paris. So, take her away. Okay. Um, all right. Anne Baldwin uh, was born in Annapolis, another Annapolis lady, daughter of Thomas Baldwin and his wife Agnes. Samuel Chase was born on April 17, 1741 in Somerset County, Maryland. His father, Thomas Chase, was a British-born clergyman for the Church of England. His mother, Matilda Walker Chase, ooh, I wonder if we're related. <laughs> my, my grandmother's maiden name is Walker, died when he was born. In 1744, Samuel and his father moved to Baltimore, where Samuel grew up and received a classical education under his father's supervision. And then Chase studied law in Annapolis, Maryland, at the office of Attorney John Hall from 1759 until he was admitted to the bar in 1763. William Packa was a fellow student of Samuel's in the office of Hammond and Hall, and there began a friendship which lasted their entire lives. The two young men became members of the provincial legislature the same year, and together they were sent to the Continental Congress. In May 1762, Samuel married Anne, and they settled in Annapolis, where they had seven children, three sons and four daughters, three of whom died in infancy. Samuel was 21 years old at the time of his marriage and had just completed his legal studies. Chase established a lucrative law practice in Annapolis and began taking an active interest in public affairs that was later to make him an uncompromising patriot. He practiced law at the mayor's court in Annapolis and appeared before other courts throughout the county. And in 1764, he was elected to the Maryland's Assembly as a representative of Annapolis, where he served until 1784. An early and active opponent of the British crown, at the young age of 24, Chase openly challenged the right of the English Parliament to tax the colonies without their consent. In reaction to the Stamp Act of 1765, the Sons of Liberty, of which Chase was what was most active member, forcibly opened the public offices in Annapolis, seized and destroyed the hated stamps. The stamp distributor or agent was burned in effigy. Chase's activities in these riotous demonstrations caused him to be denounced by the city's officials as a busy, restless incendiary and ringleader of mobs, a foul-mouthed and inflaming son of discord and faction, a common distributor of, disturber of the public tranquility and a promoter of the lawless excesses of the multitude. Oh. Chase admitted his participation but maintained that the so-called mob was composed of men of reputation and merit superior to the court officials. This was a bold stand for a young man to take against the authorities in the colony. By the early 1770s, Chase had become well-known as a skillful legislature and outstanding leader. After the Boston Tea Party controversy in 1774, he was a member of the Maryland Committee of Correspondence and a delegate to the First Continental Congress. He represented Maryland in Congresses from 74 to 78 and 84 to 85, and served on as many as 30 committees in his tireless efforts to advance, advance the cause of independence from Britain. 
He advocated a boycott of British goods and a political confederation of the colonies. In 75, Chase returned to Philadelphia for the Second Continental Congress and served in Maryland in the Maryland Convention and Council of Safety. Chase was the most aggressive anti-British leader in Maryland, and when the Maryland Convention would not allow the delegates to vote for independence, he and his colleague, Charles Carroll, took to the open road on horseback to make impassioned speeches for independence at farms and towns throughout the colony. Their campaign was successful, and the Maryland delegation reversed its position and urged an all-out favor I'll outvote in favor of independence. Chase signed the Declaration of Independence with the other delegates on August 2, 1776, and helped draft the Maryland Constitution later that year. Charles uh, Chase's young wife was not permitted to enjoy the honors that were to be were to come to her husband. There is no record of her death, but Anne Baldwin Chase died sometime between 1776 and 1779. In 1778, however, Chase's reputation was suddenly shadowed. Chase, the great champion of American liberty and a longtime fighter for the rights of the people, was involved in an attempt to corner the flower market. He did so while a member of the Continental Congress at a time when they were authorizing the purchase of flour for the revolutionary soldiers, and Chase lost his seat in Congress and much of his reputation. Oops. Yes. That's too bad. But maybe, you know, he was a little deranged or something. Um, but, I mean, you know, what, up until that point, I was I, I was thinking when I read this, but, yes, I would have loved to have known him. I mean, both of them, um, Chase and uh, Carol. I mean, how ballsy to stand up there and insult the, you know, the court officials <laughs> when they hold your whole, you know, um, life career in your in their hands. Did we lose you again, dear? Oh, no, there you are. No, I'm here. Okay. Um, the other thing is, just, <laughs> it just goes to show how wonderful our nation really is. Because the Chase was a Protestant, and Carol was a Catholic, and they both went together to sign the Declaration of Independence and stand up for Maryland because freedom was more important than their ideals. Well, that's it. Yes, they were. They were. They put that difference uh, aside. Aside. Because they had a bigger goal, and you know, and 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 I was thinking is is I was you know when I read that you know he and 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 um, Carol took off and went and did all these uh, was it Carol that he went off with? Um, oh, let's see. Took off. Well, anyways, when he left to go around the the towns. Yeah, they took to the open road on horseback to make impassioned speeches for independence. I mean, they could have been caught at any time. And there was um, Anne at home, you know, seven children, or, well, I don't know when the three died. Um, 
but she had a flock of kids anyways around it to take care of and there's her husband out on the road with another rebel you know that and and they're they're on horseback basically um uh, with traitorous intent I mean, speaking of the independence of the of the colonies was a, a treasonous act against the king. And of course, George wasn't having none of it. He really uh, he didn't have much good to say about uh, the colonists at this time. I know. All right. Now, let's see. Did you get to, did, you did this from the women's blog, correct? I did. Okay. What about his second wife? They, just, they didn't have his second wife, Hannah? Um, let me see if, yeah, the, uh, the, uh, um, they didn't, they didn't. Oh, wait a minute. Maybe I didn't go down far enough. Let's see. Okay, he married... Okay. And this was after the Revolutionary War. Um, okay. So he, he was a widower during the entire... Uh, she war. died between 76 and 79. And, and after... And then he was uh, kicked out of the, the Continental Congress because of his power at escapes. And um, uh, for the next two years of the Maryland delegation to Congress, and though he was later reappointed, he rarely attended and played only a minor role. Temporarily temporarily retired from national politics, he still remained a dominant figure in Maryland politics. And then in 1783, he was appointed by the state of Maryland to go to England in an attempt to recover some bank stock which belonged to the former colony. This achieved very little success in this matter, for the issue was tied up in court proceedings. And then while there, he met and married Hannah Kitty Giles of London, who bore him two daughters. Um, and that's all they have to say about her. Uh, they they really don't... Um, I, she's just not... I couldn't find much of anything on her. Uh, there were some books that uh, that are out there on the wives of um, you know the the uh, founders, but I didn't well, wasn't able to get them you know in time, and some of them were quite expensive and out of my budget. <laughs> but there are there are more books out there if you want to uh, look into that. I just couldn't, uh, I couldn't um, uh, have them here. Um, well, then he, he just kept going on and on, though. He he was in the Supreme Court, um, but he, he, let's see. But, okay. And, and okay, here we go. Um he moved to Baltimore in '86, and in, in not a man of means. Um, 
but the uh, value of this property that was given to him by uh, his friend Colonel John Howard, uh, son of son-in-law of Benjamin Chew and later U.S. Senator, you know, presented him with a square of land in a newly laid out part of the city, provided he would make his residency there, and this property, you know, value rose rapidly, which helped him. And he was not a delegate to the Constitutional Convention at Philadelphia, which adopted the U.S. Constitution on September 17, 1787. But he criticized the U.S. Constitution as undemocratic and voted against ratification. When the Constitution came before the Maryland Convention for ratification, Chase was in the minority of delegates who voted against it. He was an ardent anti-federalist at the time and argued that the Constitution concentrated too much power in the hands of the central government. His opposition to the Constitution cost him his state legislative seat in 1788. And that same year, he went bankrupt after several of his speculative business ventures failed. These business risks had also damaged his political career, which had been plagued with charges that he used his office for personal gain. A little little black side to him. (laughs) He'll agree. Dogged by bankruptcy and charges of corruption, Chase sought refuge in the position of a local judge in Baltimore Criminal Court in 1788. And then he was concurrently appointed chief judge of the General Court of Maryland. Now here, you know, and this is where the propaganda of the times could be coming in. Um, he might not near been near as corrupt as they made him out to be, but because he wouldn't ratify the Constitution, these guys had no problem with calling you things in the papers um, that had, you know, little to do with reality. I mean, my God, if you read, if you read um, some of the, the, uh, I have a book and unfortunately it's in a box somewhere, but it's the founders on the founders. And it, it's, it's what all the different founders wrote in letters to other people what they thought of certain other founders. And it's hysterical because a lot of these people had never met before. They only knew of them through the newspapers or through, you know, correspondence committees and all this. But it's hysterical, and I I wish I had it at hand because, you know, a lot of them didn't think highly of each other. It wasn't like they were this band of brothers, you know, joined at the hip. These guys, these founders of ours, they had really some harsh opinions of each other. So, you know, when they say he was dogged by bankruptcy and charges of corruption, you know, take that with a grain of salt because, as we have laid out before, the propaganda uh, throughout the, you know, the, the people and in, in the, poli- in the, the politicians especially, you know, they, they could come out with some amazing um, articles or letters to the, the papers that would curl your hair today. So he uh, he was um, he was nominated by President George Washington to the Supreme Court on 1796. So you know it could have been too bad. I mean, why would you be putting a, a someone a corrupt somebody in the courts? I, I just can't see President Washington doing that. So um, you know he 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 was confirmed in 1796 and, and sworn in. Um, 
uh, he's, he delivered several precedent-making opinions, but he is best remembered for the contentious behavior that he carried to the bench. I love that. I love that. Um, originally an anti-federalist opposed to the ratification of the U.S. Constitution on grounds that it deprived the states of their independence and sovereignty, Samuel Chase changed his opinion about a strong central government. By the time he was seated on the nation's high court, he had earned a reputation for his zealous zealous defense of the Federalist Party and his harsh criticism of the Democratic-Republican Party. Generally speaking, the Federalist Party favored a strong national government, promoted legislation that advanced mercantile interests, supported the creation of a national bank, and believed that the federal government should be run by the most well-educated and affluent Americans. The Democrats' Republican Party generally favored stronger and more independent state governments, promoted legislation that advanced agricultural interests, opposed the creation of a national bank, and believed that the federal government should be run as a popular democracy with its power being directly and closely derived from average Americans. And his political beliefs endeared him to the White House while Federalist John Adams was in office. But in 1800, Democratic-Republican Thomas Jefferson defeated Adams to become the third president. And he, the, uh, his party took control of the, the, the both houses of the Congress. See, even back then, even back then, what people don't understand is that there's nothing new under the sun when it comes to government and human beings. And unfortunately, human beings make up government, and that's why, you know, you have to keep an eye on them because they all have their human nature, and some are better than others. So, um, and then, uh, so he went on to being a a very, you know, very outspoken um, justice, and he did not, in, in you know, he well, he wasn't in favor of President Jefferson and his whole party. And uh, he did. He was nearly impeached. <laughs> I mean, this guy, he must have been something. My God. So he remained a justice of the Supreme Court until his death, but he was often absent his last 10 years on the bench due to gout, and his productivity was far less than that of his first five years. And he died in Baltimore on June 19, 1811, at the age of 70, and was interred at St. Paul's Cemetery. He left an estate of $15,000 in personal property, about 2,500 acres, and a number of Baltimore city lots. Chase's financial difficulties continued to the end, however, as his estate did not cover his outstanding debt. Ah, he was quite an interesting man. And I imagine, uh, you know, for... It doesn't say, but it, it would appear that he and Anne had a marriage of love because it doesn't say anything about it being a, a family, you know, uh, two families get, getting their kids together to form whatever they were looking for, you know, more power, more money, whatever. Um, but she must have been something, too, to to, to have put up. I, I try to think of these women, how they were. I mean, when you look at, at him, I mean, he was something. He was a brash 
go getter. And uh, I mean, she and she <laughs> she must have been a strong individual too, because my God, I imagine she she was probably good at calming him down. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, that's what they say, and most of these women. They, this is what, again, with that stupid march, uh, Deb, it just drives me insane. We've yeah. been robbed of our history as women. We really have because we did own businesses. We did run things. We did have rights. And a lot of places where, in, dependent on the state, if you own property, you got to vote. You know, the other thing that I keep bringing up here in Montana Speaking of women's rights, and because we are talking about women in history, Montana was the first territory slash becoming a state to elect a woman to the state legislature. Did you know that? Yeah. Montana was the first state to do that. Yep. So all of this stuff that everybody was having a cow about would have happened organically if the government didn't get involved. And the yep. government wasn't involved back then, and it was happening organically. How many, how many businesses did uh, Benjamin Franklin's wife have to, to take care of? Mm-hmm. And with the help of his daughter, we've done Benjamin Franklin's wife, daughter, and sister. And they were all prominent. They were all, just like we, we were talking about um, Chase's wife as well. Carol's wife, she had to, have, had to manage a huge estate. Yeah, I mean, yeah. As I was saying earlier, back then, you know, it's like I said, a lot of people think of these as, you know, the fainting flowers on the chaiselon, you know, just sitting there and and telling the slaves and the servants what to do, you know, while eating bonbons. No, I mean, these women got up early, had to take care, you know, make sure the household ran smoothly. You know, were the education managers for their kids, for the most part, and never mind they were pregnant a lot. You know, a lot of the years of their marriage, they were pregnant and giving birth and having little babies, and and then they had to be the hostess with the mostess when the dignitaries came by and the social events took place, and they had to keep their reputation spotless, and, you know... Um, and and they were hampered in some areas by society as you know society's rules for women. But my God, they ran. You know, it's like they were their their they were their their business partners. Yes. Yes. There was a, um, almost all of these men would would seek their counsel. Yes. Yes. Because they were they were educated. I imagine Anne. Case was very, or Anne uh, Carroll, you know, well educated and in more than just you know embroidery and, and piano or harpsichord or whatever it was at the time, um, you know, in case something happened. And then you know your husband's out there doing tre- treasonous activities, and you're thinking, whoa, <laughs> what could happen next? Right, exactly. See, and the women of today, I'm sorry, um, Brian hit it right 
on the head. Everybody's calling these millennials snowflakes. We don't do that. We call them porcelain dolls because snowflakes, if you look at three snowflakes, if you could look at three at a time, and here, out here in Montana, it's very dry. So you could actually, you could actually see the shape of a snowflake because if we don't have a, a wet snow, the dry snow, you could actually see it if you grab one before it melts. And snowflakes are individual. Not one snowflake looks like the other. They're very individual things. And I don't like that term, and neither does Brian, because of that, because it, snowflakes are individual. I know they're saying it because they melt, but um, porcelain dolls, to me, is more of what our society has turned into now. Because if you touch it the wrong way, it shatters. Yes. They're very fragile. Yes. They're very, very fragile. So we call, we call them porcelain dolls. Wow. Our founding mothers were not in any way, shape, or form porcelain dolls. No, and, and you have to think, you know, okay, so they were well-to-do women. They were well taken care of. They didn't have a lot of the worries that the, the, the women were out on the frontier, you know, that the wilderness were dealing with. Now, they were in well-settled urban environments that were protected, and you know they they were they lived in areas that were were safe from you know the lesser uh, well-to-do people, you know the riffraff, as they sometimes are called. Uh, but they so before the revolution, the amazing thing about this is. These women were very well protected, very well taken care of. They didn't, ha you know, have much of a care besides, you know, maintaining what they had to maintain. And then the revolution came in the, in the 1760s. Now, you have to remember, the revolution started in the 60s, not 74. Oh, it, it had 10 years before the Declaration of Independence and all that. And... These women had been living this life of, you know, okay, this is cool, getting married, having babies, doing their life, and all of a sudden the country's at war. You know, there's 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 riots that they're hearing about. You know, Boston being blockaded and and you know people going hungry and and people's houses burning down and you wonder if you're next and you know which side are you going to pick? But they stood up. They went, oh, okay. They didn't go, I don't, it's not fair. Well, they might have said that at night, you know, when things were scary. Well, I would have said that at night when things were scary. But they threw that off and got up, got dressed, and went out and took care of business. And some, many that we have talked about, uh, they, like I said, their husbands took, took off towards the noose as well as they did, because the families were as guilty as the husband. didn't matter if they were involved or not. They were guilty by association. And so the guy riding off to do his patriotic duty, as, you know, as he thought, or his loyalist duty, as he thought, put his whole family in danger. But they got up, got dressed, and took care of business. And some above and beyond. 
And that's why we admire them so. Well, that's why we we did this endeavor because, you know, it is a, it is taken as you can see, life gets in the way a lot between Deb and I, <laughs> um, and we haven't been so steady. Hopefully, that'll end this year. But that's one of the reasons that we do this show because nobody is talking about this. Nobody is talking about the brave, courageous women, not only with this war during the Civil War, during World War I, World War II, during the Vietnam War, the Korean War. No one's talking about the brave women that were either left behind or helped in some way with the war. Yeah. They're not talking about this. They're talking about how inequality and unequal women are. They're talking about how they're, they're abused. and You know, that's a very small population compared to the rest of the women, especially the ones that we talk about. We've been doing this for three years, ladies and gentlemen. We didn't even think it would last six months. Yeah. Three years of women. Yeah. And the thing is, is another thing that's happening these days is that they talk about empowering women. And who do they hold up? Margaret Sanger, one of the most intolerant people in the world, um, and and um, you know, good God, women today. The the role models held up for the women of today is so sad. You know, when you think of the the you know Madonna and Beyonce and and who's the one with the tongue there, um, Miley Cyrus. Excuse me? No, that's not the role model I want for my kid. I'd rather have her read about Anne um, Carroll or, or, you know, any number of the, the women that we've done. Sybil Lunnington, the teenager. Yeah. Who oh, 250 to 300 miles in the rain, in the dark. Yeah, and then the, the, the young girl that went out um, to get the powder from the shed, and she was shot at by the Indians and the the British. She got the powder back to the, the soldiers. And she was what? She was young. Yeah, she was also a teenager. And the plantation owner that had to take over or the plant, the daughter of the plantation owner, they had to take over the running of the plantation. Cause Four plantations. Mm-hmm. Four, not just one. Yeah. And she was a... And, you know... Uh, oh, I, I just... Yes, this is so important. The role models of today. God... You know, you look at those music videos and the movies that they're showing and what women are like. You either have to be a whore or a bitch. You know, excuse my bluntness, but um, that that isn't it. It just very rarely do you see a movie anymore where the woman is is kind and strong and ballsy. So. Well, and the women that were, and the 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 
signers of the Declaration of Independence, they were signing, as we say over and over and over again, their death sentence and their wives' and families' death sentence when they put that signature on there. And look at how proud, because this is going to be a part two, and we're almost at the end of the show, ladies and gentlemen. That's why we're talking like this, because we still have uh, William Packa and Thomas Stone to get through. And um, I'm going to be looking at the... Uh, the um, links that you gave me more carefully because I, I wanted to bring up more, but I wasn't sure if it was going to be a part two, but now I can. Yes. So we can add to it. And that's why um, we're talking like this. But it's, it's important to say because all these men and their wives were very proud of them doing this. And they would all knew they were signing their own death sentence if they did not win this war. It's amazing to me. There is nobody in this country that has that fear at all and has not had it for 200 years. That's, that's true. Not until recently. And now, um, this is why we, we, we have to just down the government to, you know, back to the founder's original intent because the government isn't supposed to be spying on all the citizens of this country. The, the government isn't supposed to be telling you what you can eat and what you can't eat, how, you know, how, what you can drive and what you can't drive, what you can plant and what you can't plant, and the puddle in your backyard does not belong to them. It is not a wetland. And it's just we've gone so far... And and these you know and and these women are, are bitching because they they think that you know they have an abortion. Well, I'm sorry, that isn't you know um, a fact to begin with. And there's other things about. Well, and also one of the things now with the new administration, it's going to give us a breather, but we still have to fight. Oh, on it. Yeah, the communists are, are going to come on, you know, even stronger now. They're going to throw everything at them. You know, the, this this administration is just between the media and the communist party and the the socialists and you know all those Bolsheviks. Um, the, just going to pepper them. So be careful what you believe in the news because the news is the the, the, the mainstream media is not. America's friend right now. No, not a not free. We need to get our free press back where we have actual journalists who do journalist things, not propaganda and indoctrination. And we got to take our schools back. Well, we, need, we what we need to do is take our states back from the ground up, starting with the zoning board, starting with the school board because our children are our future, then the planning boards or zoning boards, whatever that's called in your area, yeah. um, to all the, you know, all the way to the mayor and just keep going until you get to the legislatures and the governors. And that's what we have to do because the states have to realize that they're more powerful than the national government. And that's right. not going to happen unless you educate yourself so you can tell them. And the one way to educate yourself is to go to Patriots Pub, PatriotsPub.us, PatriotsPub.us. You can download all the episodes, start from episode one. It was a three-year endeavor by three um, 
self-taught scholars about the Convention of 1787 day by day in the founder's words, no politics. Knowledge is what is going to get us through this. Everybody out there is ignorant, especially those marchers had no clue what they were doing. They have no idea what this country is. So go, go to Patriots Pub, patriotspub.us, and listen from episode one. You will learn what the founders wanted for this country. And again, in the words, why let uh, Deb take us out, I just want to say the words of Mr. Chase once more because it was brilliant what he said. And he was so proud of signing the Declaration of Independence, and he was the last one left alive to, um, not Chase, it was uh, Carol, sorry. Mr. Carol, that's who it was. Uh, let me just get him up, and then I'll have Deb take us out because it's important that we remember these words. And if you go to Woman History Blog and just look up Mary Carroll, you can get his, um, his what he said at the 50th anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence. And this is what he said, I, hear, I do hereby recommend to the present and future generations the principles of that important document as the best earthly inheritance their ancestors could bequeath to them and pray that the civil and religious liberties they have secured to my country may be perpetrated to the remotest prosperity and extended to the whole family of man. And with that, we'll have Deb take us out. we got three minutes. Hey, well, I can say is God bless our first responders. Um, hopefully their, their, uh, their lives will become easier when um, they, they know that they're respected and um, supported, and God bless our our uh, kids in uniform, all the uniforms. Um, they're kind of in flux right now, and we're hoping that the military gets its collective act together and starts seeing the military again instead of a social experiment. And God bless this country. we got to keep fighting for it. it it's, it's the best thing, and to give it up is, is oh, I can't even imagine. So pray, pray for our country and this new administration, whether you like them or not. Um, we we hope that because if good things happen um, in in our governments, and I mean local as well as federal, um, that's good for the country. So we have to keep on them and let them know we're watching and we weren't going to be put off anymore so with that thank you for stopping by hope you enjoyed um the evening's program and i'm sorry for my my uh little tongue tongue problem um and and we shall see you all again hopefully next week if life you know gets easier for the both of us at this point and again thank you for coming by We'll see you next week. Good night.
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.